We all know, we can all read books, uh, if we don't know, we can find out a lot about the ancient Greeks and the Romans. And it's common knowledge that many of our words, for example, are based on Greek or Latin, that our universities are based on a sound tuition in the classics, not so much nowadays, but originally, a good education was of one sort only, an education in the classics. Everyone's heard of Pythagoras' theorem. Uh, school mathematics today was considered in ancient Greek times highly esoteric, the prerogative of a few mathematicians, and now it's common knowledge. So obviously we owe a great debt in our culture to the ancient Greek world. But I want to try and look at the other side of this now. What is not so much externally evident, what is the inner nature, or was the inner nature, of the Greeks? What is, in fact, the Greek spirit? To understand the Greeks' contribution to evolution, one has to approach evolution in the kind of cosmic timescale that Rudolf Steiner um, can, can help us to appreciate. So I'd like to spend a few minutes briefly going over something that spoke about at greater length once at John's house, the evolution of man, which is a grand term there, not so much physical man, but spiritual man, how, how our consciousness has changed from earliest times to the present day, how the Greek spirit fits into that and forms an integral part of it, and how we, in our own right, have our own characteristics today which will lead on in the future to uh, another civilization <coughs> which will look back to us and say, yes, the European spirit or whatever spirit of the 20th century is the foundation of everything that we are today. Now, I want to start a long, long time ago, prehistory, I'm not sure what date, but what uh, is commonly characterized as ancient Atlantean times, 10, 12,000 years BC, an awful long time ago. There is no, well, arguably, no, no historical, or little historical, clear historical evidence for um, what life was like in those times. It's orth in orthodoxy, it is regarded as highly speculative and certainly true history, I think. I know it's all kind of that, isn't it? So we'll <laughs> say more than that. Okay, that is true still. Yeah. yeah. But um, Rudolf Steiner, with his methods of research, investigated not so much the outer life in those ancient times, but the inner life. And interestingly enough, he says that the ancient Atlantean point of view, their particular way of perceiving life and their level of consciousness, we find today still, well that was in when he was speaking 80 years ago, but still today to some extent I presume in the Red Indians. So if we look at speeches made by the great Red Indian chiefs for example, at their best they would give us a tiny little hint of the consciousness which uh, prevailed in those dim and distant times. And that consciousness was one which saw nature as the body of God. So even today, the enlightened Red Indian would look at a tree and see it as something divine, something to be revered. And even the dust under his feet was, um, was hallowed ground. I don't want to say much about those times, 
except to say that this um, particular view of life, this inner perception, was gradually lost. So that man felt that when he saw nature around him, he wasn't seeing the body of God at all. He wasn't seeing soul of the world as it were, he was simply seeing physical substance. And hence the need for religion arose. In Atlantean times there was no religion. Post-Atlantean times there was a desire to be reunited with this body of God, this spirit of God that was evident in earlier times. Now coming ahead about 4,000 years, which brings us to about 6,000 BC, culture um, reached a rather high point in what is now known as India. In those ancient times, the Indian consciousness perceived the world around them not as the body of God anymore. God had slipped a little bit behind that so that outer nature was seen to be kind of outer husk, as it were, an illusion. Nature is Maya. Have that word for it. Behind nature is the hidden God, Brahman. This is what we have to aim for. But God is very hard to reach in nature, He's much easier to reach in ourselves, in our hearts. So the ancient Indian mood, the inner mood of consciousness, was to search for God within, what we would call mysticism nowadays. So he would sink inwards in his meditation, his contemplation of, of great divine truths and try and contact this God and turn away from the outer world. The literature we have of those times, well, there isn't any actually. The earliest Indian literature we have, the Vedas, the Bhagavad Gita, Rudolf Steiner says uh, belong to a much later age and despite all their glory, they are but a shadow of what it was like before. The next civilization to rose, gradually developed and reached its peak of perfection and then gradually faded away again, as all civilizations do. And this was in the part of the world which we now call Persia, where the step forward was made in the relationship between the inner divine, divine nature, God, quote what you will, and outer nature. And this step was to feel outer nature no longer as illusion, as something that had to be turned away from, but rather as something that offered resistance to our efforts. I'm sure we've all felt this in, in some way, that we have certain ideas in our heads and we try and work in the world and there are forces in the world that, that thwart us. They, they experienced nature itself not as the body of God, not as illusion, but as a real tangible thing which presented resistance to their efforts. So their aim, their ideal, the ideal of the enlightened Persian, was to transform inner nature. He had to apply his own ideas of divinity, his own consciousness to nature, work with nature, work with crops and the seasons and so on. They became husbandmen. They attempted to transform nature. They had little knowledge of the laws of nature. The study, the systematic study of the laws of nature, what we might call the first beginnings of natural science, came into the next epoch when consciousness again took a step forward. This is a tremendous age 
Shtanda usually refers to it as the Egyptian epoch, although of course it includes the great Babylonian civilization, uh, the Chaldeans, the Assyrians, a whole cluster of mighty civilizations around about that time. Now what's this? 5000 BC? 4-5000 BC? So in the ancient Egyptian civilization, man experienced the world around him as not resistance, but as full of order, meaning, pattern, laws, natural laws. And they studied the movement of the stars, especially the Chaldean priests. They were uh, guardians of tremendous wisdom that they gleaned over centuries. They worked out the natural laws. They um, learned how the rising and falling of the Nile, which was of central importance to their way of life, how this correlated with the rising of um, Sirius, which you might be interested in, Nigel. Hence mm. the central importance of the Sirius star to the ancient Egyptians. They read all these um, things into the stars. They regulated their social order, their domestic order, literally centuries ahead, based on this, in one sense, rather rigid wisdom of the stars. The Egyptians uh, saw physical objects and objects like the stars and the planets as being beings, as, as spiritual beings. So they looked at Sirius, they didn't just see it as a point of light, they inwardly felt this was, a, this was somehow a living being up there in the sky, this was actually a god. All the, all the heavenly bodies, everything was experienced as full of life, very, very dynamic view of nature. Moving on to Greco-Roman times, which is the object of this little chat, not only did they see and experience nature as something very real, not only did they see laws in that nature as being divine laws, but they had a great desire to impress, to take it a step further and impress <coughs> something of their own inner spirit, their own ideas, into nature another kind of transformation of nature not experiencing it as resistance but as a, a pliable medium as it were, they could then impress their own um, idealism into and I think this is generally recognised by Greek scholars that one of their great aims was to portray living flesh in stone um, <coughs> when you say into nature do you mean into God or into nature literally if you see what I mean they want to get stone I think yes you, you're talking about they're mm. transforming their own understanding mm. uh, and maybe even their own weaknesses into nature but do, uh, when you say nature in that context are you speaking of nature as nature God or just nature, the trees, the branches, and so on. You see what I mean? If, if they experienced that in nature as God, they wouldn't want to transform it. But they, they experienced it as something real, which offered the, the divine ideas in them a chance for expression. Mm. So that they, they wanted to impress the God in them into outer nature. So they built wonderful temples proportioned according to the, the golden mean. They tried to capture a human form in stone. And if you look at some of the later Greek statues, they could really be 
not, not fossilised, that's the wrong term, but they do look living, there's a tremendous kind of vitality about these. The early Greek statues, they tried to capture the muscle structure, you know, the way that, uh, like, rather like Leonardo da Vinci, with all the little striations, the lines caused by the pull of the muscles. They look very weird because they got it wrong at first. You had rather peculiar knee joints and this sort of thing. But the later Greeks mastered this to such a degree of perfection that the Greek statues were, um, <coughs> you could say, the epitome of Greek art. They, they were the fulfilment of the ancient of the Greeks there. They also wanted to shape their society according to their inner ideals. Unlike the Egyptians and the Assyrians and so on, that the Egyptians read laws in nature and shaped themselves according to that. Whereas the, the Greeks invented philosophy, almost. They were the first philosophers, certainly in the modern sense. Aristotle founded all the main branches of philosophy that we have today. They invented this and they wanted to get these ideas from within their own souls and impress them on their outer society and model their society according to that. They invented democracy, for example. Romans carried this uh, process a little bit further. If we um, carry this a stage further, we finish up where we are today. Today, we, we try and do the same thing. We try and get what is inside ourselves, maybe some uh, master plan for how a town should look, we try and impress this on our, on our environment. But today, we carry this a lot further than the ancient Greeks did. We have also taken a step forward in our consciousness, though arguably, it might be a step backwards from certain points of view. But we go a step further and discover the laws in nature and try and use those same laws to change nature itself. So we're not simply projecting our idealism out into art or nature and changing that. We're taking the laws of nuclear physics, for example, the laws of matter, very subtle, intimate laws which have dis been discovered in the last century or two, using those literally to change the world. If you think what's happening now with the current debate on nuclear power, it's a very, very uh, significant thing that the great power that man has discovered over his environment. At present it seems that it may well be a power for evil, but surely something that could be a great power for good as well. We're still turned very much outwards, still um, in our relationship to, to the world and to the divine. We've lost track of the divine within ourselves. We don't experience it as the Greeks did. And this age will be followed, according to Rudolf Steiner, by another epoch where the path to the spirit is retraced. So we'll then um, have overcome our, our flirtation with matter, our obsession with matter, and then turn more towards uh, the spiritual in ourselves and in nature, uh, but on a higher level. That really is another subject. To so go back to ancient Greece, and look at two things, primarily Greek philosophy, which is uh, a wonderful preoccupation with the relationship between the divine in the human being and the divine in nature. This is really what Greek philosophy is all about. 
And then, right at the end, I wanted to say a few words about Greek myths and legends. <coughs> now, Rudolf Steiner, in discussing Greek philosophy, says that you can only really understand it from the point of view of the mysteries. And the mysteries are a body of knowledge, learning, training, religious instruction which has existed in every age in a different form. The Egyptian priests, for example, were guardians of the, of the mysteries in those times. And in Greek times also, there were mystery centres where uh, people could be initiated, certain selected pupils could gain this ancient wisdom and become entirely transformed as human beings. And this training uh, is, is more or less a closed book to us. You can't find out much about this from ordinary literary sources. So Shiner insists, and I think that's right, because I've not seen much that makes sense in ordinary literary sources about mysteries. So one can only go to the, the traditions of the ancient wisdom itself in order to gain some insight into what the mysteries were all about. And in the mysteries, people were initiated into this wisdom as a real experience, not as, as a collection of ideas. It wasn't like a university where you go and fill your head with ideas. It was really a school of uh, an experiential path where one would gain in certain abilities or powers which would be called almost magical by the average person. Plato speaks quite clearly about the mysteries and the secret teachings. Some philosophers certainly were initiates in the sense of having an intimate knowledge of the mysteries. And what the philosophers tried to do, what some of them tried to do, not, not those who merely speculated in their heads, but the main Greek philosophers, what they tried to do was to express the truths that they experienced in the mysteries in the form of philosophical concepts. So you can take the whole of Greek philosophy and say, well, this is just a collection of ideas, and you can analyse it and criticise it like any other idea. But the other view, the one that I'm trying to put forward here, is that this is merely a mode of expression of certain fundamental truths. I'd like to look at a few philosophers, I wouldn't dare to say in detail, but just a little pinch of each one, Starting with Heraclitus, who lived um, about the 5th century BC, who, according to Shiner, was an initiate, he was familiar with the ancient mysteries. And you can find hints of this in the writings of other uh, Greek contemporaries, who generally said that his thoughts were disease and darkness to those who didn't possess the light themselves. So if you listened in those times to Heraclitus, you'd think, my God, this man's a nut. <laughs> you know, he's so gloomy, so depressing, it's awful. And yet his thoughts were radiant as the sun to he who had light. Clear indication that only a fellow mystic or somebody with some knowledge of the mysteries could really understand what Heraclitus was saying. He was the great theoretician of change. He said, all things flow away. It's one of his great uh, mottos. All things flow away. All is change. You look with the senses at the world around us, 
and it changes, maybe quickly and obviously, maybe very slowly over millions of years, but it changes. You can't dip twice or step twice in the same stream. You step in a stream, you step out. You go back again, it's now different. It's different water, the first lot has flowed on. And the whole of life, the whole of sense experience is changing in this way. He was obsessed with change almost. Life and death he regarded as one, which may sound a little bit morbid. And he said, it's all the same to me, I'm not really bothered whether I'm dead or alive, there's no difference. Right? If something dies, if you die, you make way for new life. You can't have everybody living and living and living indefinitely. Things have to die in order that new life can come along. This is evident in the seasons. And likewise, when new life comes along, something, um, something dies. So life exists in death. And also death exists in life, because I'm changing all the time. And therefore, um, I, I maybe have a certain point of view, then I change my point of view. A bit of me has died. And even physically, literally now, uh, we are not the same people we were seven or ten years ago. Now I look at you and I sort of recognise your features and yet the skin that I actually see um, um, renews itself fairly, fairly quickly. It's a fairly fast turnover. So what we see of somebody, really, uh, we don't even see the same person twice. We regarded eternity as a child of play. Very interesting one to ponder. If you look at a child playing, if you look at his play, that maybe has a certain relevance and a certain importance, but if you look at the child himself, you really see the true being there. If we look at life, what we should learn to see through the outer appearances isn't the transitory things that pass away, but the child playing behind that. Eternity is a child of play. What is the eternity? What's the enduring factor behind all this change that we see? He said that God poured himself into the universe of things. But if we fail to see God in this, in, in the things, we're just looking at what's least important, what is transitory. He regarded um, God as pouring himself out into the various elements that compose nature, and that there's great tension existing between these elements. And a new kind of equilibrium or harmony establishes itself in the tension between opposites, rather like a bow or a lyre. The tension in the lyre string <coughs> is what produces ultimately the harmony. It's a very musical view of nature. So, nature is the tomb of God. God has sacrificed himself in nature and we have to turn towards the right thing in nature, not the outer transitoriness that the senses tell us about, but the eternal line behind that. And he says that in man, the same universal force, the force of God, that creates nature and creates conflict, expresses itself within us as our own creative mind. And through the attainment of wisdom, we can then reach a state beyond conflict, and that is a state of God-realisation, a state where God realises himself in our consciousness. 
So the state of wisdom, which rises above conflict, is the ultimate, uh, the birth of God within us, as it were. And these thoughts are echoed time and time again in ancient Greek philosophy. I want to digress a little bit, and, uh, because it's rather fun to do so, say a little bit about some of the philosophers um, who aren't following this mainstream that I, I want to come back to in a few minutes, but who made light of that almost, and who tried to, who got a little bit more speculative <coughs> and began to tie themselves up in mental knots. Cratylus, Cratylus, or however you pronounce it, actually not, none of the pronunciations or anything like we have today if you speak to a Greek and ask him to pronounce uh, um, Heraclitus it doesn't come out like that at all it's a very complex language so I won't make any excuses for anglicising these words or Yorkshireising them like <laughs> he took change to excess he said that the concept of change it, uh, to say that all is change is almost a contradiction in itself. You can't step once into the same stream. By the time you stepped into it, it's changed. How can I possibly talk to you? How can you understand my meaning? By the time I finish my sentence, words have changed. You've changed a little bit. Maybe only a little bit, but he seemed to think the slightest amount of change is significant. So there's a logical contradiction things change all the time <laughs> nothing stays where it is that is a contradiction Parmenides was more interested in the kind of logical analysis of what is permanent in the world he was more concerned with the eternal he <coughs> analysed the permanent aspects of the world what are they, where do we find them we uh, take, um, take a picture on the wall it's permanent, so it's dropped off it's not permanent you take this floor that's reasonably static but if we come back in uh, half a million years time there won't be any trace of this can we say that something which is permanent is red or it's, it's square can we fix any sense qualities to it and obviously we can't because if we say something is, is red then obviously it has the potentiality of being not red of being something else so what is permanent? permanence can't be anything that we can describe like that, any quality in fact he said the only thing that's permanent is the fact that something exists if, it, if, if there is an existence that existence will transform itself through many stages there is still something there existing and hence this famous saying of Parmenides being is non-being is not <laughs> <laughs> peak of his philosophy then so what's permanent has to stay the same otherwise to become what it isn't now just as we have Cratylus who was a smart aleck uh, dating Heraclitus so we have Zeno who was a pupil of Parmenides who um, takes um, change once more rather like Cratylus in a way, to, to such an extreme uh, Zeno was a pupil of Parmenides he took it to such an extreme that he hoped uh, to convince people that the only possible position in philosophy the only tenable thing that we can believe at the end of the day is that being is, non-being is not that must be the sum total of our philosophy 
right? and he showed, tried to show this, proved this almost mathematically uh, in a series of paradoxes that say if you take change, the concept of change, it is an inherently ridiculous idea so that the only tenable position uh, is to turn away from change altogether and go for what is permanent. So as soon as we look at the outer world, any consideration of motion, the Newtonian laws of motion, or anything you care to think of that depends on what the senses have to tell us, it finishes up in such a web of contradictions that we've got to dismiss outer sense knowledge as an unfortunate illusion. And only being is real. That is, that's the important thing. Well, first paradox it's fun to mention these briefly Achilles and the tortoise you probably, uh, probably come across these Achilles the great runner can run ten times faster than the tortoise which I never think is, is a very good track record I mean even I could run ten times faster than the tortoise but nevertheless for the sake of my simple figures ten times faster the tortoise though has a ten yard start right so Achilles gets to the point where the tortoise was by which time the tortoise has moved a tenth of that distance further on. Achilles trots a bit further and he gets to the point where the tortoise secondly was. Achilles has moved another tenth of that distance further on. So, never quite catches up. So, well, we all know Achilles can run faster, but if you really think about it and apply what was in those days rigorous mathematical knowledge, he never actually catches up, that's ridiculous. Therefore, change is itself an unfortunate illusion. It leads to contradictions. Second one, if I want to move to that wall there, first of all, I've got to move half the distance, obviously. And that takes a certain time. Before I can move half the distance, I've got to move half of that distance, a quarter of the ultimate distance. That takes a certain time. So any distance, ultimately is broken up into an infinite number of little bits, each one requiring a finite time. And infinity times a definite number gives infinity. So, it would take an infinite distance for me to get to that wall. Well, I can easily get to the wall in, in a few seconds, yet I can't according to logic, therefore there's a contradiction. So, the whole thing's an unfortunate illusion. But if you if you aim to go one millimetre past the wall, yes. you'll get there. Ah. It sounds a little bit puerile to us, but he wreaked havoc in the ancient world. Mm. And, uh, another thing, before the third paradox, very interesting, before an arrow, uh, for example, uh, can move, wait, an arrow can do two things if I'm shooting an arrow. It can either move where it is, or it can move where it is not. It makes sense, doesn't it? Mm. I can either move where I am or move where I'm not. Well, if the arrow moves where it is, then it's not changing its distance, so it's not moving. If it moves where it's not, it can't be there, so it can't move. <laughs> now, this, this, this apparently meant, <laughs> meant something to say. <laughs> I pondered this one. And one of his great Zenoists, a pupil of Zeno himself, was um, trying to get this point across in the marketplace in Athens one day and getting rather worked up and gesticulating wildly and dislocated his shoulder <laughs> <laughs> and the doctor in the audience said well I'm afraid this circumstance is impossible <laughs> because for your shoulder to be dislocated 
it can either be dislocated where it is or where it isn't. If it's dislocated where it is, then it can't have actually moved, therefore it can't be dislocated. If it's dislocated where it was, then it wasn't there to be dislocated. And then walked away. <laughs> and the chap uh, said, well, I'd like you to fix it no matter how it got <laughs> dislocated. And apparently he uh, rethought his views and I think he went off somewhere a little bit there. Anyway, his idea there was that um, um, there is this inherent problem in the concept of change and this, this really dogged the Greek world how does one reconcile impermanence and change Democritus proposed one solution uh, which was to somehow combine the two you have two, two things in, in the universe first of all you have a kind of permanent unchanging base which he referred to as atoms that which cannot be divided that which has no quality no property at all. The atomic theory of Democritus. I don't think the atomic theory in that day bears all that much resemblance to that, although superficially maybe. There's an immutable, unchangeable base of the world. The atoms. These atoms can combine and recombine in an infinite number of forms. They change in their relations to one another, they themselves remain unchanged. So a kind of uneasy reconciliation between permanence and change, which actually developed and developed through many metamorphoses and became the foundation of modern day science. Wonderful, these ancient philosophies. What do we have nowadays? What's our preoccupation? You have uh, a typical... Um, 20th century philosophy, just 20th century. William James captivates the American spirit in some way. He said that the philosophy, no matter what it is, an idea, uh, can be evaluated according to a particular criteria. The Greeks would have loved to know how to evaluate theories. How can one judge them? William James's criterion was cash value. What's the cash value of a theory? really good American philosophy <laughs> sorry <laughs> but if, if a theory has some cash value if it can lead to things being different profitable in some way uh, or if it works in some external way then it's worth using the, the theoretical basis of it whether it's true or false is really unimportant so he wasn't bothered with truth but with the value of the theory end of digression back to Heraclitus who, remember, said that man is composed of conflicting elements into which divinity has poured itself. Now, if that is so, his spirit is eternal. Uh, we can't really have any security if we take outer transitory things of the senses too seriously. We need to see the play of, it, of the eternal in us. Then Empedocles, in particular, taught reincarnation. Uh, I'd like to read a little paragraph here of Empedocles who in considering the eternal nature of the human spirit says in a sense it's obvious how can all the faculties that we have have come from nothing something must come from something we must have lived before in order to account for ourselves as the way we are now so a little paragraph from Empedocles foolish and ignorant are they who do not reach far with their thinking. 
we suppose that what has not existed can come into being or that something may die away wholly and vanish completely impossible that their beginning sorry, impossible that any beginning can come from not being impossible also that being can fade into nothing for wherever a being is driven it will there continue to be never will any believe who have been in these matters instructed that spirits of men live only as long as so-called life endures that only so long do they live receiving their joys and their sorrows or that before they were born and when they are dead they are nothing so he clearly believes in the eternity of the human spirit around about the 6th century BC which is earlier than Heraclitus isn't it the Pythagoreans had a somewhat different approach they saw that the soul of man can discover mathematical laws within itself and that the senses could then confirm these in outer nature so they could see the workings of mathematics in nature eternal laws are hidden in the depths of the inner soul of man and can then be applied outwards which again is a very important foundation for modern science in modern science one is doing just this theorising and then looking for the validity of this outside so the Pythagoreans in a sense base uh, forms much of the foundation of the modern scientific view now Aristotle who summed up most of the ancient philosophers believed that Pythagoras went too far a little quote from Aristotle he says of the Pythagoreans they were the first to advance the study of mathematics and were so engrossed in it that they took the elements of mathematics to be the elements of all things now as numbers are naturally the first thing in mathematics and they thought they saw many resemblances in numbers to things and processes and certainly more in numbers than in fire, earth and water so for them one type of number came to mean justice another the soul and spirit another time and so on with all the rest moreover they found in numbers the characteristics and relations of harmony and so everything else in accordance with its whole nature seemed to be a reflection of numbers and numbers seem to be the first thing in nature not just a, a manifestation of the divine but almost the divine itself Socrates and Plato how can one speak of <laughs> Socrates never wrote anything the only accounts we have of him uh, one of his contemporaries wrote a play parodying Socrates and clearly he didn't like Socrates very much Socrates was 46 this chap uh, Aristophanes wrote uh, a drama which was a wonderful parody uh, very bored in Shakespearean actually very sort of you know matter of fact earthly language typical of the Elizabethans in a way uh, not sort of thing for mixed company now we seem to have lost that gentle art but he's clearly mocked and made fun of Socrates in every way he could but he seems to have been alone in the ancient world in saying that the majority view of Socrates was uh, that he was a man of, of tremendous uh, nobility of character who could bear a great deal of suffering very much his own master very much um, an enlightened man <coughs> Plato in particular 
bases his philosophy on his master Socrates and um, the dialogues of Plato are very much the dialogues of Socrates. Socrates, as I'm sure everyone knows, was condemned to death for not honouring the gods and for corrupting the youth. It's interesting, not honouring the gods, how could an initiate do this? Well, the Greeks impressed their own inner idealism on the world in the form of art, and part of their art was inventing gods. They made up their own gods. And these were not the gods, these were not the eternal beings that the Greek philosophers were happy with, because they had human characteristics, and hence were subject to change. They couldn't be the true gods who were not subject to change, the true being which is. When he was dying, when he was under the influence of the hemlock, he gave great discourse on immortality. He said immorality. <coughs> great discourse on immortality. He died as only an initiate can die. All his friends were around him, and yet they didn't feel sorrow. He was so composed and happy and noble in his passing away, giving this wonderful discourse, the very peak of his, uh, his philosophy, they joined with him in peculiar sort of happiness, peculiar uh, sense of release and composure. Death, for him, was just one event like any others. According to Socrates, those who occupy themselves with philosophy in the right way are really striving after nothing else than to die and be dead without this being noticed by others. In other words, we die to everything which is unimportant, everything which is transient, therefore reborn to the eternal. If this is true, it would be strange if, having after having aimed at this all through life, when death itself comes, that they should be indignant at something for which they have for so long striven and exerted themselves. So Socrates saw death as merely a continuation of his natural endeavours to die to everything which is transitory in this life. Heraclitus in action, almost, the very fulfilment of that. Socrates believed, and Plato also, that we shouldn't trust our senses. If we do that, we get ensnared in our senses. We have to die to the things of the senses. How do we do that? We confront them with our intellect. And Rudolf Steiner says that it was very much part of the mission of ancient Greece to develop this intellectual capacity. And if we analyse the information that the senses are given us, then we rise above illusions. For example, we go to a cinema, not like the ancient Greeks, but <laughs> nowadays, and we see what appears to be continuous motion, but really this is an illusion. It's made up of a series, so many frames per second, of separate shots, which the eye combines together and creates the illusion of continuity. And by applying the intellect to the cinema, we can form a true concept what's happening there and overcome this illusion of the senses. You can think of many illustrations of how the mind can be applied to the senses in this way. So the mission of philosophy was to free the soul from the body. 
and may read another little portion of Socrates relevant to this. It is when the soul is alone with itself that it can bring forth these eternal truths. It is then related to the true and the eternal, not to the ephemeral and apparent. When the soul returning into itself reflects, it goes straight to what is pure and everlasting and immortal and like unto itself. And being related to this, cleaves to it when the soul is alone and is not hindered. He's saying here that in order to understand the eternal, we must have something of the eternal in ourselves. When the soul rests from its mistakes and is in communion with that which is like unto itself, and this state of soul is called wisdom. Look now whether it does not follow from all that has been said that the soul is most like the divine, immortal, reasonable, unique, indissoluble and unchanging, while the body is most like the human and mortal, the unreasonable, multiform, dissoluble and ever-changing. If therefore this is so, the soul goes to what is like itself, to the immaterial, to the divine, immortal and reasonable. There it attains to bliss, freed from error and ignorance, from fear and undisciplined love and all other human evils. There it lives, as the initiates say, through all after time, truly with God. So this wonderful uplifting view of, of Socrates, which is very much linked with the view of Plato, who also saw the inner inner life as being real, not, not purely symbolic or abstract in any sense. Now Steiner um, claims, and he looks to the Greek philosophers themselves to substantiate his view, he claims that uh, the myths and legends were not merely symbolic or, or merely fairy tales. Plato himself speaks of the myths as embodying the same kind of truths which the philosopher puts forward. And he says, this is Plato, and Steiner echoes this viewpoint, that unconsciously one is aware of these tremendous forces within human nature and forces within the world. And we embody these eternal truths in myths. When we invent myths, we're not just inventing blindly and nominally and at random, we're actually using a creative faculty which is based on this bedrock of deep unconscious inner experience. So what emerges in the Greek philosophers' um, particular views also emerges in mythology in a different way. Although Greek mythology, as you know, appears to be very literal and physical, you have uh, King Minos of Crete, was there really a King Minos? I don't know, but it's, it's rather like uh, our modern mythology if we said you know, Queen Elizabeth uh, of London was once uh, shopping in Harrods one day when she confronted a dragon. We know that she exists and, and therefore there's a tendency to take the whole thing very literally. But really this was um, merely an expression, a different expression of the ancient mystery wisdom. just like to mention two myths. One is the great myth of Dionysus. Poor chap Dionysus had a very unfortunate childhood killed before he was born. Zeus, the god Zeus, 
had a little flirtation with a mortal lady by the name of Semele and uh, she conceived Dionysus but before Dionysus had a chance to be born even she was struck by a bolt of lightning from one of the gods and she was killed Zeus, the father of Dionysus rescued the unborn child and hit this infant Dionysus in his thigh so that means hit him in his thigh sheltered him there until he was ready to be born again quite a chap Zeus however Hera unfortunately the mother of the gods didn't like uh, this, this union between Zeus and a mortal lady didn't like Dionysus the offspring and incited the titans these tremendously powerful beings against Dionysus so they got their hands on Dionysus and dismembered him poor lad that's, that's the second time he's, <laughs> uh, he's had it so Dionysus is chopped up into little bits and scattered everywhere and that's the end of him ah no Pallas Athene rescues the heart of Dionysus it's still beating <laughs> takes the heart to Zeus the father and being a resourceful kind of chap he reconstitutes Dionysus from the heart so Dionysus makes it after all quite a, quite a, a, a tricky uh, voyage uh, through childhood there so he engenders his son again his son is, is reborn what does this mean? this is a theme which occurs in, uh, in the ancient Egyptian myth of Isis and Osiris Osiris is likewise dismembered and likewise reconstituted dismemberment proves to be no great handicap in the ancient world Zeus is the god he is the embodiment the symbol of the eternal of the divine which unites with the earthly unites with the temporal soul the soul which is subject to change everything which changes in us receives the divine element this is what we are this is how the ancient Greek philosophers viewed man as a kind of union of the divine and the temporal the eternal and the transitory when we feel the divine the eternal stirring in us that is equivalent to Dionysus being born within us spiritual awakens in us the first thing that happens when this spiritual element is born within us the divine is born within us is that our ordinary <coughs> consciousness symbolised by Hera in this particular myth is jealous we tend to squash it we tend to turn away from the good and the divine and the eternal within it we tend to tear apart dismember this immature child the divine within us I'm sure we can all look to our own inner experience and find that that myth is actually a living part of all of us how we tend to dismember and tear apart that which often we know is, is true and good within us the titans of the lower nature of man have this tremendous force the outer will nature, the sense nature which have the power to say well blurt I'm going to have a good time never mind what my conscience is saying and so on but the wisdom even though it's dismembered and fragmented in us nevertheless still has its heart intact and it will grow it can be rescued and it can eventually come to dominate the whole of our being 
I think the ancient Greek philosophers would have regarded modern natural science in some measure as a dismembered fragmentation of the divine forces within us. In natural science we're using the power of thinking, we're using it largely, ultimately, to satisfy our own lower desires. Our whole civilization is based on, on satisfying desires, that's what philosophy and materialism is all about. And we are far short of reuniting these, these fragmented members into a divine whole within us. In this book, very interesting book, Christianity's Mystical Fact, Rudolf Steiner says how many of these ancient myths, the Egyptian and the um, Greek myths, are a foreshadowing of the ideas that we find in Christianity, of how the divine has become lost and fragmented and how it is born again within us as the Son of God. Another myth, the Minotaur of Crete, King Minos, exacts a terrible toll from the Athenians. Every eight years he sends for seven damsels and seven young men who have to be sacrificed, they have to be taken across to Crete, you all know this story, and they're then set into this, free into this maze. Nobody can get out of this maze, it's so horribly convoluted, and they eventually encounter this uh, monster, the Minotaur, and they're devoured. After three sessions of this, Theseus rises up in revolt and he decides to conquer the Minotaur. The great problem is, he's confident he can slay the monster and put a stop to this bit of nonsense, but how can he get out again? And um, Ariadne, who's the daughter of King Minos, provides him with a ball of thread, which he unwinds behind him, goes into the maze, eventually encounters the Minotaur, slays it, and then finds his way back. So what can this possibly mean? The interpretation of this, according to the uh, Greek initiates, Shona uh, reminds us, is that the maze, what is it? What is it about us? It is maze-like. Once got, uh, getting entangled in it, it's very hard to get out. This is really a parody, a symbol of our state of consciousness. We have to challenge what the senses tell us with our intelligence to find our way out of this maze. So this weaving thread of intellect is symbolised here by the ball of thread. And having done that, we're then able to slay this terrible monster which holds us captive, which devours us, devours the fruits of our personality, devours all the gifts which we're trying to develop throughout life, so that we can then leave these intact and go on and develop wisdom. So a tremendous harmony between the myths of ancient Greece and some of the ideas which the Greek philosophers were trying to tell us. There's a lot more, as you know, in mythology, and I haven't even got onto Aristotle, <laughs> not much about Plato, uh, and there's uh, an awful lot of could be said about Greek philosophy there. But um, what I try to do, rather than simply giving an account of, or a list, a catalogue of Greek philosophers, and trying to trace their developing ideas intellectually, rather than just giving a catalogue of myths, fascinating as they are, is to try and give, a, give something of a key that can be used to, to understand 
this ancient mode of, of consciousness, this way of seeing the world, which can help us to understand it in a little bit more detail and to, to view it as, as the basis for our present state of consciousness. <coughs>